chapter 1. And the sermon text this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Take care in your listening to this word, for it is God's holy word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us turn to him in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak that you reveal yourself. And Father, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts, that your spirit would work in us, that we might be uh, more and more growing into the image of Christ, that we might understand the things written herein and give you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage this morning teaches us, by the hand of the Apostle John, that God invites us to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. And that is our theme this morning, that God invites us to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Now, according to tradition, John likely wrote this book as a letter to the church at Ephesus in his old age. It seems that he did so on account of false teachers troubling the church at that time. Now, the identity of those false teachers isn't known, uh, but it is thought that they may have been a group of what some refer to as proto-Gnostic teachers. Uh, There's even some possibility that they were associated with a man named Serenthus mentioned by some early historical witnesses uh, who were associated with John. Whatever was taught, and whoever taught it, cannot be known with certainty, but we can form a bit of the flavor to this false teaching based on many of the things John focuses on in this letter, as well as uh, from those early records of uh, common heresy being espoused. And it is thought, for instance, that the false teachers added various requirements on the people before they could be considered to have true knowledge and fellowship with God and before they could attain to eternal life. But John points us instead to the eternal life and fellowship that he knows is freely offered to us in Jesus As I mentioned, the theme of our passage today is that God invites us to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. The false teachers 
taught that the physical world was inherently evil and that the Christ was really a separate spiritual thing from the man, Jesus. But John emphasizes the reality of the full humanity of Jesus, even as he uses language that reminds us of the creation of the world and speaks of Jesus as the word of life. John bears witness to the reality that we confess about the Son of God in the Nicene Creed when we say of him that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. As we consider 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, we find that Jesus came in the flesh and that in him God invites us to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Our passage talks about that which was from the beginning. And while this language does have a significant allusion to the creation of the world in Genesis 1, that is not the primary referent here. It is most immediately referring to the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. It refers to a teaching that the church had received, which was a teaching that remained true from its beginning. And John appears to be writing because there was a crisis in the church. False teachers had arisen in that church, and these men were contradicting the apostles. In reading this book, we surmise that these false teachers were men who had been known by the congregation but ended up going out from them. So John has written both to reassure the church during the confusion of such a crisis and to gird them up to faithfully abide in and bear witness to the truth. Central to the truth is this matter of fellowship. Let's consider then the Apostle John's Holy Spirit-inspired witness to Jesus Christ as he refers to it. John talks about what we, referring to the apostles, have heard, seen, and touched. He bears witness to the extraordinary through the ordinary. He bears witness to the incarnation of the eternal Son of God through whom the world was made. Yet he bears that profound witness by referring to those things that had occurred in his own life's history. We know from the gospel accounts that John walked dusty roads with Jesus, requiring foot washings after walking, that he followed him throughout his days of ministry on earth. John ate many and countless meals with Jesus, sometimes simply reaching out and plucking grain from the corners of a field, and other times eating in people's homes. Some were called sinners. Some were tax collectors. And some were Pharisees and teachers of the law. John went with Jesus wherever he went. As it is in many of our own lives, certain times were more poignant than others. 
At one time, when many who had followed Jesus left him, John stood in solidarity with the other eleven disciples when Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Even beyond ordinary things, John saw extraordinary things throughout his life with Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He ate some of the bread and fish multiplied to feed the 5,000. He was even on the Mount of Transfiguration to behold the light of Christ's glory shining brighter than the sun and to hear a voice from heaven declaring Jesus to be the beloved Son of the Father who is to be heard above all others. But John also saw the pain of the midnight betrayal of a friend. He was there when Judas came in the dark of night, betraying Jesus with a kiss. Surely he knew the suffering of those Ephesians whose brothers had risen from among them and betrayed them. Yes, John stood on that other mountain with the Christ. Far removed from the glory of the transfiguration, he stood on the mount outside the gates of Jerusalem at Golgotha. And he saw the high noon blackening of the sun when Jesus hung on that cruel Roman cross, a frail human being suffering an unjust death. There on that cross, John saw the naked, wounded, and bleeding body of the Holy One of God laying down his life for us sinners. With his own ears, he heard our Lord speak mercifully to those who knew not what they did as they crucified the Lord of glory. He heard his friend and teacher cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John heard Jesus say with a dry and raspy voice, I thirst. He heard our Lord say, It is finished. And, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And John's eyes looked on as Jesus yielded up his spirit to the Father and breathed his last. Never could there be more demoralized men than these who stood with Jesus, never more deflated. At the death of Christ, the apostles were scattered and afraid. They were likely suffering great doubt. Indeed, we're told that even when Jesus uh, came to them, that some doubted. And perhaps they were asking, were we wrong to follow this man? Has his death sealed our shame? And we know even Peter, who initially followed out of a sense of zeal, had denied Christ three times. John saw Christ's thorn-crowned head bowed in death. And John bears witness to Jesus buried in the garden tomb. He saw 
and experienced the humiliated Christ in all his feeble humanity. He saw that full cup of suffering, that full cup of God's wrath against sin, swallowed up, drunk down to the dregs. He saw how Jesus loved his own to the end. But praise God, what John heard and saw and touched with his own hands and what he declares to us, it did not end there in the darkness of that death. No, John also heard the report of the women about Jesus having risen from the dead and he was the first of all Jesus' disciples to look into the empty tomb. After that, he saw the resurrected Christ He ate and drank with him again as Jesus reassured his disciples that he was truly risen as he held out his hands and and wounds to be touched. John saw the vindication of the truth in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He had experienced that suffering that comes with following after Christ And he also bore witness to the vindication that came in the resurrection of our Lord. John himself was commissioned by Jesus as one of his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And John was among those who stood looking up when our Lord ascended into heaven. He received the Holy Spirit along with the other apostles on the day of Pentecost. He was instrumental in the Lord's upbuilding of the church so that he saw much fruit born of Christ's word, even through to his old age. He saw the word of God go forth. He saw the acts of Jesus Christ. He saw the fruit of God's invitation to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. And that is why John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Over against a teaching that would divorce the eternal life from the time and space history of this world, John tells his story. But this isn't just John's story. He is a witness for our sake. It is ours now. Jesus died for us so that we might have life in him. If you come to faith in him, if you come to him in faith, you can have fellowship with God. You can be made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ. John's story has been given to you written down for your sakes. In fact, it is because of the witness of John and the other apostles that we today could have ever heard this word of life. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. Only believe. Repent. That means to turn away from your sins and believe this good news. That, in fact, is the life of the Christian. Continually walking before the Lord in the light of His gospel. Repent and believe. The same Holy Spirit who formed Christ in the womb and who was poured out without measure on Him and who bore witness in the hearts of the apostles, that same Holy Spirit now comes to us and bears witness to our hearts through their witness wherever the Word of God is proclaimed. He enters the unfolding history of our lives and He changes us progressively into the image of Christ. His life is made manifest in us. We can all look back on our lives and consider just how much the Lord has done for us. And we do well from time to time to make sure that we do just that. Especially in times of discouragement. We do well to remember that the Lord is working in our hearts and in our lives in the history of this world. Whatever comes to pass, in our own lives, even the worst things that might happen to us. To those who are united to Christ by faith, these are all meant for our building up into Christ, for our sanctification, for our growth in grace, and for the declaration of His glory to our brothers and sisters. And so we take comfort knowing that Jesus by His Spirit is with us always to the end of the age. The whole thrust of the entire letter of 1 John is to encourage God's people to look to Jesus in faith and to teach them to trust Him for their life while seeing to it that they take care to really live a life of gracious and thankful obedience in the life and light of that fellowship in the love of God. John, along with his fellow apostles, saw Jesus' life lived in obedience unto death. And they themselves followed him in that pattern by his grace. As it was mentioned, John lived to an old age. He had seen his fellow apostles follow Christ unto death, striving their whole lives and striving in some cases quite imperfectly, to make disciples, to fulfill the great commission. But it wasn't by their might nor power. It was by the Spirit that the Lord's word went forth. John, in writing his gospel account, pointed out the apostles' union with Christ in John 20, verse 21, where Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And then a few verses later, in verse 29 of John chapter 20, Jesus talks to Thomas about us, saying, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John knew that the life of Jesus lived with his disciples served us as well as those countless others over the centuries who have believed in him. 
He knew that he was serving us and that Jesus extends his fellowship to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have a fellowship with Jesus through their Holy Spirit-inspired witness. And our own witness is the witness of the Holy Scriptures. Our witness is this apostolic witness to Christ. And we have fellowship with the apostles as we hear their Holy Spirit-inspired witness to Jesus Christ and as that same Spirit works faith in our hearts. We have this fellowship with the Father and with the Son as the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the Apostles' witness, as God invites us to this fellowship in the eternal life of Christ. This is why John writes, That which we have heard, that we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. But before I go on, You might be wondering why I'm mentioning the Spirit so prominently, and even the title of this message is The Fellowship of the Holy Spirit. After all, in our passage, the Spirit is not explicitly mentioned. Well, in answer to that question, I want to point out uh, that there is a somewhat jarring absence of the Spirit here. In this passage, in his various writings, John often speaks of the Father and of the Son, while seeming to leave out the Spirit. Yet he also has profound passages regarding the Spirit. I believe uh, that John is pointing us to the work of the Spirit through the church in her role of proclaiming the Word of God and living it out when he speaks of this fellowship with the apostles. There is a a strange trinity here of the Father and the Son and the apostles. This emphasizes that God's Spirit works in conjunction with the apostolic witness to Jesus. That he imparts fellowship to us through them. And I want us to consider the nature of fellowship as we as we speak of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, as we speak of having fellowship, what is fellowship? Well, in the Bible, fellowship has to do with being associated with those with whom we share something in common. And this, by extension, involves participating, sharing, and contributing among those who have fellowship. So in a shared fellowship... Each member of the fellowship benefits from the other member's strengths and gifts. Having fellowship imparts benefits to us. And our passage speaks of our fellowship with the apostles. But how does this fellowship with the apostles really come to us? After all, they are no longer around. How can we, with them, have fellowship with the Father And with his son. Well, John Calvin once wrote, quote, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. 
So until we are born again and hear the gospel with faith, we have no share in that fellowship. A little further on in his writing, Calvin goes on to say, quote, We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him and to put on Christ. For as I have said, all he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is true that we obtain this by faith. Yet reason itself teaches us to climb higher and to examine into the secret efficacy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. Unquote. Consider this talk about being engrafted into Christ and all of Christ having been given to us by means of the secret efficacy of the Spirit. That might sound distant and mysterious, but what is being got at in that is what we're reading about right here in 1 John. We have a life-giving covenant relationship with God because he has come to us in the person of the Son. And this triune God has taken us into fellowship with him. And he sent out his apostles into the world to proclaim this fellowship. Our fellowship takes place in the church as she proclaims this apostolic witness to Christ found in Holy Writ. Our own shorter catechism says, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. You see, in Jesus we have fellowship with the triune God. This is a fellowship that pours out the richest of benefits on us as he comes alongside us in our weaknesses. It isn't a fellowship that is just an idea out there in the abstract. God himself is really with us. He makes of us a new creation. And that same spirit who at the beginning brought order when the word of God spoke in Genesis 1 is with all who have faith in Jesus. John leaves out mention of the Spirit in our passage because implicit in his own mind is a practical, outward, and ordinary reality through which the Spirit works. That same Spirit who made Christ manifest in the virgin womb came upon the church at Pentecost. And he is the one who brings our hearts to a place of faith. He accompanies this word of God to us. In fact, in Galatians 4.19, the Apostle Paul likens his ministry to that of a woman in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in those to whom he ministers. It is the spirit of the triune God who makes us a new creation in Jesus. He has spoken through his apostles. He has spoken through those prophets upon whom the church was built up, laying a foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone. The Spirit of God lives in our hearts. 
When we are said to have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, John is talking about how God graciously engrafts His people into Christ according to His own will. And we learn of this through the proclamation that Christ entrusted to His apostles. It is by this ministry of the Word that the Holy Spirit comes to us in the first place and brings to us his life. The apostle declares to us this reality and their declaration of Christ is blessed with his presence. And that is why John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. People of God, believe this declaration. God invites you to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. It is yours, freely given. In this fellowship, we have God himself. There is no greater treasure. The eternal Son of the Father took on flesh and became a man, and the Holy Spirit works to bring about God's real presence in our lives when we gather together and learn more of his word with our fellow believers in whom Christ dwells. As we edify one another and speak the word to one another, he builds us up more and more into the image of Christ. This church made up of ordinary people, even this church, this particular congregation, made up of ordinary people, is called the body of Christ. And the Lord has called us into his body, which is the assembly of his people. He has called us to worship him together. And he has done this out of love for us. So as we attend diligently to the means of grace, the word preached, the administration of the sacraments and prayer, the Lord has made it known that we are putting on Christ. These things are done as acts of faith in him. And the apostolic witness teaches us that we have fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, along with his fellow workers, were ordinary men. They spoke of what they knew. They had truly seen the life of Jesus Christ lived in obedience, even unto death. They had truly seen his life vindicated in the resurrection and ascension. And they saw his spirit poured out upon them. They were caused by his spirit to remember all that Jesus taught them. And again, we have fellowship with Jesus through their witness. We should have confidence that when God's word is brought to bear in our own lives, and when we open our mouths to witness to others about the hope within, which we have learned about in God's word, that the Spirit of God is at work forming Christ in us. That the Spirit of God accompanies His Word. And as Christ's body, we share in His joy of serving others. It was for the joy that was set before Him that Christ endured the cross. And the assembly 
of the people of God is made up of brothers and sisters dwelling together in one body. How good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell in unity, when brothers dwell in unity. Jesus is our head, and we all lift up our praise to him. The apostles bore witness to Christ, to their dying breath. And after them, many lives have been poured out throughout history so that the apostolic witness could spread throughout all the earth. And even now, we continue to join in that labor to this very day. We continue to join in that labor as his church proclaims his word to the ends of the earth unto the day of his coming. Here we are in Swickley, Pennsylvania, meditating on John's words about Jesus. How did we get these words? Here we are, united with the whole church throughout history, confessing according to the Spirit's witness that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh for us, and invites us to fellowship in his eternal life. This proclamation has been made throughout history, many giving up their lives for its sake, that we might hear of the good things that the Lord has done. Yes, this is why the Apostle John says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The apostles' joy was made complete as they served their brethren in Christ. And our joy is made complete as we hear this joyful message. The joy of the apostles is made complete as the church is built up in accordance with their testimony to Christ. And so our spiritual service of worship, as we hear God's word, It does not divorce itself from the time-space history of this world. It is not just some abstract idea. That which is spiritual bears fruit, the fruit of the Spirit even. Our spiritual service of worship involves presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. The Spirit of God is made manifest in us, conforming our lives to the image of Christ. And so let us be gracious to one another. May it be uh, that we are patient with one another, even as God has been slow to anger for us. May we be quick to repent of our sins. May we also be quick to bear with one another in love, not repaying evil for evil, humbling ourselves for the sake of showing love. These are all ways of living that show that this fellowship that flows to us from Christ by the Spirit. And it works joy in the body of Christ when Christ is present in the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, let us praise the Father with thankful tongues as those who have been saved by his grace. 
Let us praise Him for inviting us to fellowship in the eternal life of Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. And let us lift up our voices in praise, living our lives in praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us...